There's plenty to celebrate in March and craft month with the perfect pizza at home class from craftsy and anytime is right to listen to iheart radio's iheart country radio discover more shows and movies for free residents at brightview senior living communities enjoy enhanced possibilities independence and choice brightview dulles corner in herndon and brightview great falls offer vibrant senior independent living assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. He was involved in a criminal world with his friends and associates. It quickly escalated into these homicides. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Incompetence or corruption, especially in D.C., there was a lot of activity going on. The case was forgotten. Why open up this can of worms? There were things that were just best left buried. Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm your host, Karen Smith. This is episode 16. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on the Car Barn Murders. I've handed off my investigation on primary suspect William Clark to you, the public jury. After 18 months of work, I've concluded that the circumstantial evidence against William Clark is overwhelming. Although the whole story itself is complicated, the actual plot of the crime is fairly simple once you get down to the essential facts. In episode 15, I outlined the means, the motive, and the opportunity for William Clark to commit the robbery and murders of James Mitchell and Emery Smith, but contrary to popular belief, that's not enough to convict him. Another part of a murder case that needs to be proven is intent. Criminal intent is also known as mens rea, which is Latin for guilty mind. It's a conscious decision by the perpetrator to do something that is wrong or forbidden by law, having a full awareness that their actions are wrong, and then making a conscious decision to proceed anyway. A suspect's confession is the best way to show criminal intent, but that's not the case most of the time. Because there isn't an outright confession from William Clark, you, the jury, 
have to use inference based on the circumstantial evidence. Inference means that you need to assess all of the known circumstances, Clark's behavior before and after the crime, along with his written words and actions to infer his criminal intent to commit the robbery and murders. My investigation has found that William Clark's criminal intent is evident through numerous factors and points of irrefutable circumstantial evidence, 25 of them to be exact. Number one, William Clark worked at the Chevy Chase Lake office as a conductor for one month in September of 1934, so he knew all of the details regarding money transfers, pickup times, entry and exit points, and all of the other necessary logistics to pull off an armed robbery. Number two, Clark set up the scene by ensuring that his friend, Francis Gregory, left all of the doors unlocked. Number three, Clark went to the Chevy Chase office two times on Saturday, two days before the murders, for no authentic reason. Number four, Clark failed to keep appointments on the day of the murders with Mr. Stevens and Mr. Kelly of the transit company to get his job back and opted instead to turn himself in. No follow-up investigation was ever completed after Clark's initial interview. Number five, Clark sold his Capital Transit uniform to Francis Gregory in December, proving that he knew Gregory and had no true intent to return to work for Capital Transit. Number six, Clark was spotted outside of the 14th and East Capitol Street ticket office on the morning of the murders, as K.W. Gettings observed and relayed to his roommate, Jones. Number seven, Clark lied during his interview about going to the Gaiety Theater on Sunday night in an attempt to establish a false alibi. There was no Sunday night show at the Gaiety Theater. Number eight, Clark lived two blocks from the location of the stolen green Buick which was never found. Eyewitness Ernest Carter was certain that he saw a green Buick flee the scene. Number nine. Clark neglected to report his Sunday night meeting with a police officer during his interview. Number 10. Clark admittedly knew James Mitchell and also knew that Mitchell aided the police on his previous robbery arrest. Mitchell was shot three times in the head, with the final shot being post-mortem through the top of his head, signaling revenge and witness elimination motivations. Number 11. Clark worked with Emery Smith at Chevy Chase Lake, yet described my uncle as the short, chunky barn man during his interview instead of calling him by name. Clark also denied speaking with my great uncle on Saturday, but you can't deny speaking with a person you say you don't know. Number 12, my great uncle was shot four times in the head in a similar pattern to James Mitchell, then dumped into Rock Creek to cover up his murder. This is consistent with the suspect knowing the victim and another witness elimination. Number 13, Clark attempted to murder Mary Branch five months later when she threatened to talk about what she knew. Clark planted a blackjack underneath his car seat prior to the crime which evidences premeditation. Number 14. Clark had massive debt and owed money to several people, including Frank Schuerman, who was given a vehicle in arrears as collateral on a loan. Schuerman was strong-armed by Clark and several others just days before the murders, but Clark failed to get that car back. Mary Branch had been financially supporting Clark, and Clark didn't have a job. 
Clark also failed to pay alimony to his wife, Viola, and in support of their three children. Number 15. Clark admitted to frequenting the horse track. Number 16. Clark was able to purchase furniture and put a deposit on a house in the months after the murders. Number 17. Clark had previous arrests for armed robbery and grand larceny. Number 18. Francis Gregory admitted that he believed Clark was in on the crime. Number 19. By the detective's admission, Clark could have been the gunman. Number 20. D.C. Captain Richard McCarty thought Clark could have been responsible for the murders, and he failed to report a bottle of anesthesia, a gun, and bloody clothing belonging to William Clark. Number 21. Prostitute Marjorie told Richmond Police Sergeant Anthony that William Clark was involved in the crime. Number 22. Moundsville Penitentiary inmates Joseph War Kirby and Floyd Gray said that Clark's name was mentioned in relation to the murders. Number 23. Both of the confidential informants named Clark as the primary suspect. Number 24. James Weir's Shingle Shop was located in the same building as Green's Company Incorporated, the beauty salon where the planning meeting took place. Number 25. Clark had criminal connections to Robert Janney, Walter Oliver, and to Jonas Willard Green, an ex-DC police sergeant whose cousin was DC Commission President Melvin Hazen. That resulted in the proximate safeguards against Clark's investigation and his arrest for the car barn murders. 25 unquestionable associations to the Chevy Chase Lake robbery and murders of Emery Smith and James Mitchell. A prosecutor's dream and more definitive links than some of my own cases for which I provided testimony over the past two decades. The defense hurdles would be extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to overcome. When you put all of those pieces together, as far as I'm concerned, William Clark killed James Mitchell and Emery Smith with willful and purposeful intent. Those are the facts that I'll leave in your hands to contemplate a ruling of guilty or not guilty for William Clark. I believe his accomplices were Robert Janney and Walter Oliver. I also believe that Francis Gregory was an unwitting accessory before the fact. But before I discuss Robert Janney, Walter Oliver, and Francis Gregory, at the end of the last episode, I left you with a thought about William Clark's friend and alibi, James Weir, and I asked you who Captain Theodore Volton's male confidential informant might be. I believe it was James Weir, and I believe the female informant was his sister, Neva Berardinelli. It took me a while to come to that conclusion, and it's not one that I take lightly. There are many reasons for my thoughts on this, but first, who was James Weir? He was born on October 21, 1912. His father, John, was a barber in South Carolina. In 1930, his family moved to Scotland, North Carolina when James was 18. He still lived at home and he had no occupation listed in the census records. James and the others followed his sister Neva to Washington in 1934. By 1935, James Weir had a half interest in the shingle shop beauty parlor. James Weir was living with his siblings, Sally and Nettie, and his parents, John and Susie, at 1411 Harvard Street. In October of 1934, 
Weir was arrested with William Clark by DC Detective Robert Barrett for an armed robbery. In December of 1934, James Weir went with Clark to Francis Gregory's house to sell Clark's Capital Transit uniform. On Sunday night, January 20th, James Weir was home by 11.15 p.m. according to his friend Joseph Goddard and by the interview account of Mary Branch. James Weir was arrested on January 22nd and apparently substantiated William Clark's false alibi about going to the Gaiety Theater, although the only note made during his interview stated, quote, Weir made the same statement as Clark did in reference to his whereabouts on Sunday night and Monday morning. We questioned him in reference to the murders and were unable to learn anything at all from him. Six months later, on June 11, 1935, James Weir abruptly joined the Marines and shipped out to Paris Island for boot camp. He left D.C. during the same week that William Clark was sentenced to prison for the attempted murder of Mary Branch. By December of 1935, James Weir was aboard the USS Henderson, bound for Peiping, China, where he was stationed at the United States Embassy through 1938. By June of 1939, James Weir was back in Washington, D.C. and stationed at the Navy Yard. By Christmas of 1939, Weir had gotten into some kind of disciplinary trouble and was quartered on the Rainer Mercedes, a permanently moored ship in Annapolis, Maryland. It was used for housing enlisted men who had committed some kind of infraction. It wasn't the brig, but the men had to eat all of their meals on board and sleep in a hammock in the crowded berthing area. Basically, James Weir got spanked for being a problem child. Between June of 1939 and November of 1940, James Weir was stationed in the Washington, D.C. area. In November of 1940, Weir shipped out to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and left the military at the end of his enlistment in January of 1941. He re-enlisted during World War II, and he spent the majority of that enlistment between Washington, D.C. and San Francisco, he left the Marines permanently in November of 1945 when World War II was over. By 1947, James Weir was married to his wife, Louise, and they had one daughter. They lived in Falls Church, Virginia, in a two-story home in a middle-class neighborhood. James Weir eventually became a clerk for American Airlines, and he stayed married to Louise until he died at the age of 72 in 1985. It seemed like James Weir got his life together after his military enlistment, and he lived quietly with his wife for the latter part of his life. He was never re-interviewed about the Carborn case. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. 
Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. James Weir's sudden decision to flee Washington, D.C. in June of 1935 was likely precipitated by William Clark's attempted murder of Mary Branch less than a month prior. Weir left the shingle shop and his entire family behind to join the Marines at the age of 23. Weir had been running around with William Clark since at least October of 1934 when they were arrested for the robbery. Then he was with Clark in December at Francis Gregory's house. James Weir provided a half-hearted alibi for Clark for the night of the murders, but there were no details about exactly what he said. Clark said he was with James Weir most of the day on Sunday, going back and forth to Weir's Harvard Street apartment a couple of times. During his arrest and very brief questioning, James Weir may have thought that William Clark had his back, but Clark threw James Weir under the bus during his interview. Clark was asked about being seen wearing a dark-colored suit in December of 1934 while he was standing outside of Milton Cronheim's bond office. Clark was with James Weir, and he told Detective Frank Brass that he wasn't wearing a dark suit, but James Weir was. Clark also said that Weir was wearing a dark suit just a few days before the murders. Clark also just happened to know the name and address of James Weir's cleaners. It seemed to me that William Clark was trying his level underhanded best to set James Weir up as the fall guy for the murders 
or at least get the trail off himself. With a friend like that, who needs enemies? William Clark and James Weir were likely outside of Milton Kronheim's bond office to get Kronheim's help for the October 1934 robbery arrest by D.C. detective Robert Barrett. Recall that Robert Barrett became the chief of the D.C. Metropolitan Police, and he was the subject of widespread corruption and kickback investigations by Congress. This is a quote from the D.C. Metropolitan Police website about Chief Robert Barrett. An investigation led by the Washington Post brought out what became known as the pocketing scandal. Apparently, detectives were routinely reclassifying crimes or simply not entering them on the books as crimes to be investigated. Note from me, cover-ups. This was one of many allegations of malfeasance, corruption, and brutality that were to plague Superintendent Barrett's term in office. By 1950, allegations began to swirl about corruption and gambling. Superintendent Barrett and the police department became the focus of a wide-ranging investigation into gambling kickbacks and narcotics dealings. His life outside the department was filled with speculation as he neglected to appear to testify to the commission, and when he did appear, he refused to answer any questions. However, he remained under suspicion and in 1957 was indicted for federal income tax evasion. Corruption at that level doesn't begin when a person becomes the chief of police. It's the result of years of making connections, taking kickbacks, and creating an insulating web of yes-men and trusted co-conspirators on the police department. They would be just as culpable and willing to conform in order to line their pockets with kickbacks and payoffs. I believe that Robert Barrett was just as corrupt in 1935 when he was selected and assigned by Superintendent Ernest Brown to assist on the Carborn case. Back to James Weir. He hightailed it out of Dodge right after William Clark tried to kill Mary Branch. That's not coincidental, and it was my first tip-off that Weir was Captain Volton's confidential informant. Let me walk you through it. First, recall Robert Janney's meeting with his wife Lillian at the prison. Lillian told Janney the pre-planned story that a man had been arrested for the Carbarn murders and snitched to the police. Robert Janney came unglued and mentioned the name James Moody and asked Lillian if he was the one who would run his mouth. That name was the first one that popped into Janney's mind, the weakest link. I believe James Moody was actually James Weir. Weir would have had access to a lot of inside information that would incriminate Janney in order for him to turn sheet white and panic like that. Not only did Janney's reaction allay his guilt, it also aired out his Achilles heel. If James Moody was the foible, you can damn sure bet that William Clark knew that potential weakness as well and kept his thumb pressed down on his buddy, James Weir. Weir likely didn't use his real name when he met with Clark's acquaintances, being fully aware of their violent backgrounds. The use of aliases was really common back then. Remember Harry Simon? So Janney might not have known James Weir's real identity. Lily and Janney picked out James Weir's photo, but she didn't call him by name. Now, all of this is really speculative on my part, but it does make sense within the big picture. Second, 
James Weir knew everyone that Clark was associated with, including Jonas Willard Green. Because James Weir half-owned the shingle shop with the Greens, he might have been present at that beauty shop planning meeting about the robbery and murders. Captain Volton's confidential informant possessed an awful lot of insider details that couldn't have been known by anyone who wasn't at that meeting. Third, James Weir was stationed in Washington, D.C. in 1940 when the male confidential informant contacted Captain Volton the first time. Weir was also in the D.C. area in 1954 when Volton was contacted the second time. Volton wrote that the identity of his informant could never be disclosed under any circumstances. I believe that's because Volton knew that if James Weir's name was revealed as the informant, it might mean lights out for him, just like it nearly was for Mary Branch. And let's not forget Duffy, Jonas Willard Green's mechanic who disappeared in 1936. There's no statute of limitations on murder investigations, so James Weir was never off the hook since he also carried Clark's secrets. Fourth, the simplest explanation for James Weir's hasty escape from the D.C. area in June of 1935 was his fear of William Clark. Weir felt that his life was in danger after Mary Branch was pummeled and slung into a river in the middle of nowhere. If William Clark had the fortitude to kill his own girlfriend because of what she knew, what made James Weir immune? Just like Mary, James Weir knew everything that Clark had done. He left town with the military to get as far away as he possibly could, leaving everything behind. When he got back to D.C. in 1940, William Clark was still in prison, and Weir felt safe enough to contact Captain Volton with his intel about the Carborn case. Weir came forward again in 1954 because the information he possessed weighed on his conscience for nearly two decades. Maybe, he thought, enough time had passed to get the ball rolling again and clear his guilt. Sadly, as we all know, nothing happened. My personal feelings about James Weir are mixed. I don't believe that he was a career criminal. He got involved with the wrong crowd after moving to Washington, D.C. from Podunk, North Carolina. Weir wasn't savvy about big city racketeers, and he got sucked into William Clark's world. Weir's father was a barber, so he probably learned to cut men's hair at some point. James Weir likely hooked up with Jonas Willard Green through his sister, Neva Berardinelli, since she worked at the shingle shop prior to opening the modern school of beauty. Gertrude Green brought James Weir in to run the day-to-day business in 1934, eventually cutting him in on half the proceeds. But Gertrude didn't do that for altruistic reasons. The Greens needed a fall guy in case there were any, shall we say, legal troubles with the Treasury Department, the precursor to the IRS. It really wouldn't surprise me if the shingle shop and Greens Company Incorporated were money laundering and prostitution fronts for the Greens, but I can't prove it. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. 
Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. When things got really serious and James Weir found out about the car barn murders, Weir told the detectives only what William Clark told him to say, to give Clark a false alibi. No details. The intimidating thumb that Clark pressured to keep his mouth shut. It's possible that James Weir was already in fear of William Clark after finding out about the double murder. When Clark tried to kill Mary Branch, James Weir thought he might be next on the list, so he cut and run as far away from Washington, D.C. as he could get via the only path he had available that would pay him to do it, the military. When James Weir thought it was safe to tell what he knew, he did it as Captain Volton's informant in 1940. When that went nowhere, he came forward again in 1954 to offload his conscience one more time. At that point, Weir told Volton that the female informant was dead 
Which brings me to Weir's sister, Neva Berardinelli, whom I believe was the female informant. Neva Weir was born in 1897 in South Carolina. She moved to Washington, D.C. in 1925 and got a job as a beautician at Woodward and Lothrop's department store. She married Edward Berardinelli in 1926. Neva started working at the shingle shop in 1931, and she was still working there in 1935, along with her sisters, Nettie and Sally. She opened the Modern School of Beauty in 1935 in the same location. Neva Berardinelli died in 1942 at the age of 45. She was buried at Arlington National Cemetery by virtue of Edward's service in the Army during World War I. Edward remarried and moved to New Mexico. In 1964, he had Neva's body disinterred from Arlington and moved to Columbia Garden Cemetery in Virginia. Captain Volton's 1954 report mentioned that a woman present at the planning meeting at Green's Hair Salon was named Emmanuel, and she was married to an Italian man, but Volton didn't know her last name. In my mind, that last name was Berardinelli, but the information is confusing because later in the report, it says that Emmanuel's name was actually Gertrude. There was also a prostitute by the name of Marjorie, whose real name was never found. Was this confusion like a game of telephone where information gets lost in translation and some of the names just overlapped? It's hard to say, but here's what I do know. The female informant worked for Jonas Willard Green in a beauty salon. Neva Berardinelli worked at the shingle shop, which I've proven was half owned by her brother James Weir and half owned by the Greens. The female informant said that the best satisfaction she could get would be to get back at Jonas Willard Green. The murders were planned at his salon and that William Clark and the others were at this meeting. Again, that's intimate knowledge that only a person who was present would know. Get back at Jonas Willard Green for what? For selling her brother out? For taking advantage of him? For setting him up? For failure to pay Neva or James, just like Jonas Willard Green failed to pay his debts on credit to the Flapper Dress Company? William Clark wrote a letter to Neva from prison to congratulate her on opening the modern school of beauty. Was that a psychological mind game? Clark's subtle way of letting Neva know that he was keeping tabs on her movements? Clark also told Neva's husband, Edward, to, quote, Think of me when you take your next shot. Ha ha meaning a gambling bet at the racetrack. Neva Berardinelli never wrote Clark back. The male informant told Captain Volton that the female informant was dead by 1954. Neva Berardinelli died in 1942. The female informant went with Volton to look for the garage and vehicle used in the murders in the area of 7th and N Street in 1940 when Neva was still alive. Did she need to clear her conscience? I have no idea about her cause of death, so I don't know if she was sick for a long time or if it was something sudden, but dying at 45 tells me it might have been something a bit insidious, a prolonged illness. There's no way to be sure, but between the mention of an Italian last name, the timing for the search of the car in 1940, her death in 1942, and the male informant telling Volton she was dead by 1954, The pieces seem to fit together to me, 
especially since I do believe wholeheartedly that her brother James Weir was the male informant. So, what happened to William Clark? He sat and stewed in prison for five years and was granted early release on that eight-year sentence. He was out by October of 1940 and worked for McCloskey Construction on projects around the district for the Public Buildings Administration. His wife, Viola, moved back in with Clark's parents by 1940. Clark's World War II draft card, signed on October 16, 1940, indicated that he moved back in with his mother and father as well. Clark never served in the military. He never reconciled with Viola and eventually granted her a divorce. Viola remarried in 1948, but Clark never did. There was no additional information on William Clark until the 1970s when he moved to Brandywine, Maryland and opened Clark's Red Barn, a business that manufactured storage sheds. I have no idea what happened to Mary Branch. The only historical information I could find was her previous marriage before she lived with William Clark. Mary was widowed. Her first husband, John Branch, committed suicide in April of 1930. An article in the Washington Post detailed his death. Domestic trouble cause of suicide. Man uses gas to end life. A note says death only means out, succumbs in hospital. The domestic troubles of John Harrison Branch, 32-year-old cabinet maker of 16th and S Streets Northwest, came to a climax in his death at emergency hospital yesterday after he'd been found unconscious in his apartment with gas escaping from three open stove jets an hour previous. A note found near the man declared that he'd been despondent because of marital difficulties and chose death as the only means out. Detecting the odor of gas, an elevator operator at the apartment notified the apartment manager, who in turn called Mrs. Mary Branch, 27-year-old wife of the dead man. Mrs. Branch instructed the manager to break the door in. Mrs. Branch is employed at an F Street store and was at work when the tragedy occurred. That article made me wonder if John Branch found out that Mary was cheating with William Clark and ended his own life as a result. A legacy of tragedy would follow both Mary Branch and William Clark. There was no information available after 1936 on Mary Branch, and I have no idea where she went, how long she lived, or how she died. Did she change her name? Did she leave D.C.? Did William Clark eventually do her in? I have no idea. It seemed like William Clark eventually aged out of crime and went off into the sunset to the thicket of Southern Maryland until he died in 1981 at the age of 72. He lived 31 years longer than Emory Smith and 13 years longer than James Mitchell. I don't know why William Clark was never questioned about the murders in the intervening years, why nobody followed up on the leads left by Captain Volton and the other detectives, why it wasn't worth the effort to see what Clark had to say in the 1950s, 1960s, or 1970s. Maybe he would have confessed or stumbled or at least given a little more information to move the case forward, but as it stands, he took all of his secrets with him. I was talking to my cousin recently about Uncle Emery, and she told me that her father, my great-uncle Ray, at the age of 95, still wondered about the case and why it was never solved. Uncle Ray was 12 when Emery was killed, 
and that terrible memory stayed with him for all of those years until he passed away in 2013. He told his daughters that the first thing he would ask God was what really happened that morning. 78 years of wondering. 78 years. Now, 87 years later, it's finally time for those questions to come to an end. I rest my case against William Clark. Next week, I'll talk about Clark's accomplices, Robert Janney and Walter Oliver. I'll deconstruct the statement of Francis Gregory, which was inadvertently torn apart by my great Aunt Edith during her police interview. If you have information about the car barn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Saturdays are for sunshine, especially for your ears. With another election, ongoing wars, and natural disasters, we know the news can be a lot to take in. And we're determined to share the bright side of humanity. Every Saturday, take a breather from the headlines and hear all the uplifting happenings across the world with Five Good Things, a new weekend edition of CNN Five Things. That means you can find this goodness in the same feed as Five Things. Listen to Five Good Things on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Allison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Allison. Thank you.